Buglers, we are live from Leicester Square Theatre on the 16th of September with Chris Addison and Alice Fraser. It might be our only London date of the year, so get your tickets now. Oh, get them at thebuglepodcast.com. That, that bit's important. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is a podcast from The Bugle. Hello, welcome to Catharsis. I'm Tiff Stevenson, full-time comedian, part-time, massively unqualified therapist, I cannot stress enough how much I'm not qualified in any kind of therapeutic sense. Just for this podcast, every week I bring on a guest and I talk to them about their old wounds, petty gripes, unpopular opinions, and we dive into a historical beef in an attempt to see if we can provide some insight or indeed catharsis. You can sweat the small stuff with me. Before I introduce my guest, I like to get into something of my own. I received an email from the GP this week and it was concerning binge drinking over the coronation weekend enjoy the ascension of your unelected monarch safely guys um it was very concerned that i didn't drink too much referenced how people in the uk like to drink binge culture is a phrase that that's been thrown around for years and it's always confused me the term binge culture it suggests that we're down in shots of dickens having a huge night on the classics and throwing up hours of Plato and Homer. The Iliad's coming up again. Oh, she's left a couple of sonnets in the bathroom. What I will say is you don't have to worry about me and the binge drinking because I'm in my 40s now. It's not a concern anymore. Every hangover in your 40s is Sisyphean, uh, by which I mean by the time you push that rock to the top of the hill, it's time to get pissed again. (laughs) I can't handle it like I used to. Uh, And that person laughing at uh, dealing with hangovers is my guest this week. I'm very excited to welcome to the podcast, award-winning author, King of Tartan Noir. I've read many of his books. Some of them are on the shelf behind me. It's the fantastic Christopher Brookmeyer. Hello, hello. Um, uh, just thinking of the, the Sisyphus there, the myth of Sisyphus. My son did philosophy and he said that the, the kind of sting in the whole Sisyphus myth is that it makes a different sense if you realise Sisyphus loves his job. You know, and I think I think if you apply that to uh, hangovers, there's a whole new meaning to that too. <laughs> yeah, and I, there's part of me that really loves it. I can't, I can't say there's a single part of me that enjoys the. Um, I feel like I deserve it. That's the one thing I do remember. Once they wouldn't let me on the Eurostar coming back from <laughs> Paris when I'd been doing shows, and I was so so I'd been throwing up a lot, and I turned up green, and the guy 
behind the desk said to me, is it contagious? <laughs> and, and I said, what? And he went, what do you have? Is it contagious? And I had to go, no, I did this to myself. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is the worst part. So maybe, yes, maybe there is an enjoyment in the penance because we feel like we deserve it in some small way, I guess. I was thinking more of the earning it, you know, the, the, the pushing that uh, boulder up the hill. Uh, in terms of how much you've consumed, apparently guilt is a big factor ah, in hangovers. That's yes. you know that's clinically proven. That's not just some woolly theory. And, and if you feel like you really deserved a good night out, uh, you're less likely to feel rough the next day. Wow. Okay. Well, I need to start applying this then, because I need to go. Oh, actually, I really I needed a big night on the Raz. Whereas if I've you feel like you've got something to celebrate, then the next day mm. you feel better. Okay. Well, wait, this is, I feel like that's a whole podcast in itself. <laughs> I, I think this is, this. I'm as, I'm as qualified to offer this kind of medical advice as you are to uh, <laughs> offer the advice you're about to engage in. So big disclaimers there from both of us, I think. <laughs> exactly, exactly. The first section of the podcast we like to call Old Grudge. That's where we ask our guests to bring something to the table that they either wish they'd handled differently or that they're still hanging on to something that really got under your skin and it's been around for a while. Tell me what it is. Well, I don't think I've, I've very seldom spoken to MD about this. Uh, and a grudge is definitely the word, but weirdly, I think it's um, realising I was maybe on the other end of a grudge is that I, um, as a writer, one of the things you're dealing with all the time, and especially in the early years, is, is coming to terms with reviews and, um, <laughs> and bad reviews. <laughs> and um, I, I, my first few books, I got so many bad reviews. I mean, a lot, a lot of good ones, but particularly bad reviews from Scottish critics. Um, I remember the the Herald had uh, my first novel, my first ever review I saw, uh, absolutely slaughtered the book and said it's. Um, uh, it was like disgustingly nasty and thoroughly un unpleasant or something like that. And I actually used, the publishers used that in an ad. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, I got used to getting uh, some bad reviews. But I remember like there was a, um, I think it was published one fine day in the middle of the night. And it was getting great reviews. Then it got one bad review from, from one guy. And then the next novel got a bad review from the same guy. <laughs> and then the novel after that, also got a bad review. Then four novels in a row, this guy, and, and then he reviewed the paperback as well so that he could have a kick at it again, right? Oh, two and, rounds. Yeah, and, and I'm starting to think, well, why, why would you even bother reading the book if you already know you don't like this person's uh, work? But here's where the grudge part comes in. I wrote a book called uh, All Fun and Games Until Somebody Loses an Eye and um, and been told, oh, the, 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 this particular Scottish newspaper is going to review it. And it was getting great reviews, it was going down really well. So I opened up this Sunday paper and there's just the most <laughs> vicious hatchet job um, of I'd ever received. And again, it's by the same critic. But here's the thing, the grudge here is not the critic. The, the, the grudge concerns the commissioning editor, um, whose job it is to commission the reviews. And I am, um, again, who will remain nameless, but I remember the, the reviews editor of that publication came up to me at a reception about a week later, and she was very apologetic. She said, I want you to know I had commissioned a review by someone else of this book, and this individual who was the deputy editor of the paper pulled rank <gasps> and said, no, I'm giving the review to my choice of reviewer and gave it 
to the guy who'd already written five or six hatchet jobs. And I remember just thinking, well, what purpose does it serve critically, you know, to, to deliberately give a, a book to a reviewer who you know detests a particular writer's work? Also, you know, what does it say about the reviewer that they're prepared to keep doing yeah. that? Yeah, why do you, you keep know? hurting yourself like that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, why it takes, you know, it can take like seven or eight hours to read a book. Uh, and you're going to do that, you're going to write that. And, but it just, it struck me, I thought there's something really weird that this, um, this day was like the deputy editor or something like that on one of the papers pulling rank to make sure this book got a bad review. And I couldn't really work out why, you know, but, and I actually, I did, it's the one time I wrote to the editor of a paper and explained what had gone on and he did apologize and say he thought it was completely unprofessional to have done this. But I, I kind of thought like, every so often I think, God, that was so, when you realize you've been the subject of something that's really quite, uh, dedicatedly vicious you know to go to all that bother um and it kind of stuck with me for and except that i think as, as the years go on you you don't think so much about reviews and the whole reviews culture has changed and it's it's no no longer about what's in the broadsheets and it's about what's in the amazon things but it, it, what struck me latterly was that this person must have really hated me <laughs> to go to that bother <laughs> and i suspect maybe i'd kind of inadvertently given him offense or something i don't know um, but yeah, uh, he, he commissioned. Had you met him outside of your writing career ever? I I, I suspect. I that say was... he. I I I'm. I'm it was a, it's a safe a big... bet. It's a safe <laughs> bet. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think well, actually back when I was uh, when I first moved back to Edinburgh and I was working as a freelance sub editor, um, I would bump into this person because he worked when in the I was doing shifts at a newspaper there, and he was uh, a. I think he was, I don't know if he wasn't a literary editor, but he saw himself as a kind of big literary figure. And um, I was a humble freelance sub. And I think maybe the fact that I then, the, the freelance sub went on to have a, a, a literary career was maybe not what, uh, what he had in mind. I think he, he's a bit of a gatekeeper of um, Scottish fiction, you know. Um, so I, I don't know if that was part of it. I, th I, I may have inadvertently given offence because when I, I can remember coming in saying, I've got, I've got a book deal, was all excited. And this guy liked to give the impression he knew everyone in literature. He knew all the editors. And so he said, oh, 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 have you? Who's your editor? And I said, oh, actually, I've got two editors and I mentioned them and he hadn't heard of either of them. And I think m maybe this kind of punctured, uh, without me meaning to, but this maybe this punctured the kind of mystique he was trying to create around himself. But for whatever reason, um, he, he wrote a couple of bad reviews himself, but he kept commissioning any time I got a book out, he kept commissioning the same person to slag it off. And as I say, one time he actually pulled rank <laughs> to make sure that uh, the book didn't get a fair shake. Oh, there's a lot to unpack from this. I mm. think firstly, I think that definitely is sometimes when people get very, very angry, it seems like such a personal grudge against someone. I often think, and I've said before that I think it's because there's there's a mirror there. They're seeing an aspect of something or of themselves that they, and maybe he's angry that he didn't go for it. I feel that there's a definitely a struggling crime writer within <laughs> this person who's like, why didn't I do that? And I've now this guy was beneath me and now he's overshot me and now he's got this career and I'm furious. And, and I think, I think that's ultimately, I always think that's so much sadder for him than it is for you. Because I, you're going to continue to, I mean, look at the success you've had. And the very book that you're talking about <laughs> is behind me on the, uh, 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 you know, on my yeah. on my wall of books. So You'll have encountered 
many critics down the years, and I think actually part of it was back in the, the sub early, the steam era of the internet, I created my own <laughs> website. And I put, um, I would put up quotes from reviews, but because it amused me, I put up quotes from the bad reviews as well as the good ones. You know, often if it was a particularly entertainingly nasty or, or, or even offended quote. And I think I put a few quotes up from some of those reviews. And I think maybe that was enough to make certain critics feel they'd been got at because the thing that struck me down the years is that journalists, not all of them, you know, and not, you know, hashtag not all journalists, not all critics, <laughs> but they're really thin skinned, especially the ones who like to dole it out. I've, I've written some quite scathing stuff about politicians down the years and I've met a few politicians and the thing that's always struck me about them is that they can take it. They're, yes. they're very thick skinned. Journalists are the most thin-skinned breed and critics are the most thin-skinned of that breed. Well, I think a lot of the time you are, and like we say, not all journalists, not all critics, but a lot of the time in that area, you are looking at people who had aspirations or wanted to do a thing that mm. either weren't brave enough or it was unsuccessful and therefore they can get quite mad about it. And especially if it's close to where they wanted to go or they recognise some part of that, they get furious. But... Um, Politicians, I find, uh, I find take uh, have a great sense of humour. I, I, uh, I used to have a joke about Ed Miliband, and then I met him and I did a podcast with him, and I said, "Oh, I used to have a joke about you. It's quite mean." And he, he said to me, "Oh no, go on, go on, tell it." I said, "Well, the joke was, I said you always had a look on your face like you'd just seen boobs for the first time." <laughs> And he absolutely roared. He thought it was hysterical. And I was like, I really just have to have props for that and say, like, if you can take that on the chin, if you can take a bit mm. of a bit of joking, you've got to be able to. But you can't be brittle about it. Or you cannot be so scathing and mean and horrific about stuff and then say, well, obviously you can't say that about me. Mm. It's just my place to say it about other people. But I've said this before and I will say it again. Any critic, and having done the fringe so many times, I've had every review one to five. You know, um, I got a one star review, and then someone else apologized to me and said, Sorry, that woman's a born again Christian. <laughs> um, so she really didn't like your abortion jokes. Um, but I, I, the idea that any critic can be meaner than the voice that's in my own head to me is, is laughable mm. because whatever you're going to come at me with, know that I've already done that to myself probably yeah, since yeah. I was a teenager. So. I, I remember when I first moved to Edinburgh, um, one of the first subbing shifts I did, it was August, so it was just reviews. You know, the, the Edinburgh Evening News, to its credit, just published so many reviews of what was going on at the Fringe. But because there was such a volume, you would you would see the kind of, uh, the sort of blue-rinsed, angry ones as well. But there was one, it was when Rich Hall first did Otis Lee Crenshaw, and it was someone who hadn't realised it was a joke and or hadn't realised it was a persona. And there was an angry review who was saying how outrageous it was that, that someone who'd been incarcerated was being given this kind of platform. <laughs> yeah, um, Otis Lee Crenshaw was fantastic. I love that. And I remember seeing Rich get heckled once on stage and then going, ever realise you've boxed yourself into a corner with your own character? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for sharing your old grudge. It's a very good one. And I feel lots of people listening to the podcast will be able to relate to that. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The next section of the podcast we call um, Topical Cream. Topical cream, where we attempt to apply some balm to a stingy news story that's got your head up, that's got you raging. Tell me what that is. I think I'm, you're going to need to provide a kind of whole oilatum bath here for me <laughs> to step into. <laughs> Never mind topical cream, uh, because uh, we just had the coronation, yeah. and uh, I literally went to a cabin in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> For the weekend, <laughs> uh, but but foolishly still dipped into um, social media and, and to, to find out a bit about what was going on. But, you know, sort of speaking as someone who finds the, the whole idea of monarchy absolutely absurd, um, it has kind of boiled my piss over the last few <laughs> days. And it's, I've got this policy on, on social media and, I, and I'm sure people will be able to find out where I've, I've not met my own standard, but I try not to slag off things that other people enjoy. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> and, and th- well, this, this is where... With the exception. I, I've, tried, I've tried not to uh, comment on the, the coronation. Um, so my, my problem is not so much with that and with people wanting to participate. It's actually with the, the media narrative of this manufactured consent, uh, consensus, rather, that we're all part of something, that we all come together and unite in this when we don't. You know, I think that's that's the part that really annoys me. Um, when the uh, when the Queen died, I had the good fortune to be on holiday, and um, but the the narrative was always that the whole country was united in their sombre reflection, and we were on holiday in Zante, and we had to get a room moved because there was a pub across the road that was one of these places that was full of drunk Brits every night singing karaoke. It was. It was uh, Sweet Caroline and High Ho Silver Laning, right, every night. And on the day the Queen died, uh, Ma- Ma- Marissa, my wife, made a point of, we they'd moved us to a quiet room, which we went up to the back of the, the hotel just to see how the Union Jack Shorts Brits crowd were dealing in their sombre reflection <laughs> with the Queen having died. And sure enough, it was still Sweet Caroline and High Ho Silver Laning <laughs> till one in the morning. And that was the you know, the people who were there in Union Jack T-shirts, right? So this, but the narrative we got was that the whole country was, you know, brought to a standstill in their their um, their grief and their reflection, and and it's just simply not true. Well, it's wild watching an entire nation collectively just lose its mind. Like mm. it's like, and I do feel I feel like social media amplifies that that side of it as well because I knew like my mum was like. 
when the queen died, she's like, she's been there my whole life since I was a little girl. So I understood the uh, attachment and sentimentality and through war years and everything else, what that meant to people and to, mm. they're going to do that in whatever way they do that. Do we have to give over five days of television to this for 24 seven. And when the presenters are desperately running out of things to say, she liked her horses. Oh, did she? I thought she hated them and probably went out and kicked them every day. Like, what are you talking about? Like, like just like the absolute, like, like dirge of commentary when there's mm. nothing else. To, yeah. To they're say having to, having to elevate the most banal things to, to a level of profundity, you know, because <laughs> everything related to the, the royals has to seem profound and important. So, yeah, they, they'll try and create a, uh, some kind of public interest in something in, of which no one has an interest. Uh, and it's like, at the moment, I was looking at the, um, the BBC Scotland stories on it, and they were talking about the whole, how, how Scotland celebrated and how Scotland's going to have all these parties. And I noticed that you start to read between the lines. For one thing, there's all these pictures and they're all taken from angles that, that are conspicuously taken so that they don't show just how few people are at these things. But it's to create a narrative that, say, oh, up in the, the Orkneys, there was a lunch, you know, uh, and, <laughs> and, uh, and and somewhere in, in the borders, there was there was another lunch, you know, and, and it's, but again, the, the, you could see that the story there is actually uh, that this, coronation was met largely with indifference by the majority of the population but that's not the story we've been given i only heard on one and i don't know which channel it was on i caught bits and pieces of it the bit where penny mordant was dressed as serena joy from the handmaid's tale <laughs> holding a ceremonial sword which I'm, I'm waiting to see the claire's accessories version of the bejeweled sword <laughs> coming out this summer um but I, I i i saw so i saw sort of that and i saw um you know that there was a horse that had like gone backwards into the crowds or something i saw like little tiny sort of pieces of it but in the commentary this, that i saw and so i can't remember exactly which channel it was on it said it was talking about how excited everyone was and then then they said well it should be noted that not everyone feels like this because obviously there was a protester arrested just for taking signs out of a van, mm. not even doing anything like yeah, any dissidents yeah. will be dealt with swiftly and um, physically. And so she said, it's, it, it has to be noted there are counter protests. Not everyone feels this way. Like in terms of journalistic integrity, you have to say that, you know, it's not the, the only mood is not jubilation that this is happening. Yeah, but real journalistic integrity would reflect that across the medium you know what we get is this occasional disclaimer that the obligation to say oh yeah by the way uh this does not reflect the whole country but the the media narrative around the royals always has to give the impression that the whole country is united behind them and which is not to say the whole country is is um republican in its sentiment either but we, and also i think what it never measures is level of interest you know, you can say, here's how many people watch something, but it doesn't mean that they're particularly engaged with it. No, some people want to see spectacles. Some people yeah, are like, yeah. this is absolutely batshit. What is happening? There's a gold carriage. There's a gold yes, carriage. Yes. And Harry has to get in an Uber with Andy. Like, what is going on? <laughs> like, like there's so there's parts of that where people are watching for the... Um, and then watch hate watching so that you can mm. write 
funny comments about it and stuff. But like, obviously, the amount of money that went into it is such a huge discussion in the current climate mm. in terms of cost of living crisis and everything else. And it's probably not for us, not the last coronation we'll see. <laughs> Because yeah, it will happen yeah. again, you know. Yeah, it's not going to be 70 years this time, is it? <laughs> no, it's not. It's not. <laughs> not unless uh, there's a, a vampiric quality to, uh, <laughs> to channels that we've not heard of so far. It feels like it's not a very read the room mm. <laughs> moment. Oh, yeah. What, what a time for a vulgar display of ostentatious wealth. Yeah, yeah. I do remember, and I, you know, bringing up Piers Morgan, but... I remember when the Queen in that first austerity year did her speech sat in front of a golden piano and everyone was going mad about the golden piano. Mm. And uh, Piers was like, of course she has a golden, she's our monarch, she's our queen and she reigns over us and of course she has a gold piano and stop being ridiculous and she that's part of it, you know, and how dare you. And then a week later, uh, <laughs> Chris Jenner, <laughs> I hate to bring the Kardashians in, had come on Instagram with like an Hermes bag um, and it had something like rich on it or something. And, she was, and he was like, what a disgusting, gross, ostentatious <laughs> display of wealth. And I was like, how is it okay for one person, but not another? Like, mm. you know, Chris, Chris Jenner hasn't, uh, hasn't got money out. You know, she's not, she's not a monarch. She's, she's made it. And, and we can all have her opinions on how she made it, but you know, she, <laughs> she made the money. So why is, it's either, either this level of wealth is iniquity and a gross and ostentatious or it's not, you can't just, pick and choose who it's okay for, surely. Well, I think uh, there's a very great sort of British tradition of thinking if you have made your money, that is vulgar and you shouldn't be showing it off. But if you've inherited your money, you should show it off. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and and Chris Jenner has fallen on the wrong side of that one, obviously. Yes, yeah, she's nouveau riche. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's like there was that line in, was it in Succession in the previous series where... Um, uh, Harriet Walters' character says witheringly of someone, yes, he, he, he bought his own furniture. <laughs> <laughs> well i have some inherited furniture but i don't necessarily think that means that it's uh expensive inherited furniture <laughs> yes it's not a chippendales <laughs> yeah yeah it's one of those things where i get i guess another another uh point to this is the inescapability of it mm. like you've had to go to a cabin in the woods mm. um and uh, when I turned up at my my show last night, the tech was like, "I wore all black yesterday." <laughs> like, but I just, uh, but but just like, if you don't want to participate in that, and I I can imagine that there's, I don't think there was any street parties near me, but I can imagine that people had some fun street parties, and if people want to get together and have a party and be a community and do neighbourhood things and that, I think that's all fine, you know. But it felt like if no matter what channel you turn to, this was going to be shown and. Uh, you know, I don't think you had a choice if you stayed to no, not engage no. with it. No, I mean, obviously, it, it was at least it was something they were trying to celebrate. I think when it was the the, the Queen's funeral and the the mourning period, that sense that you were being addressed as though you were part of this, that that we are all mourning, and it wasn't really the case for most of us. I mean, people could could respectfully mourn the loss of a monarch and acknowledge the contribution they felt that this monarch had made. But what really got my my, my nerves was the, the people were talking about, oh, she was like your gran or whatever. So what, if, if your gran was a woman you'd never met. You know? <laughs> 
if your, if your grand was emotionally I, remote. And... I, yeah, I, I also had a very distant grandmother. Yeah. <laughs> I have a Scottish grandmother, so in some ways, yes. Geographically distant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, she was wonderful. Uh, thank you for sharing. I, I can very much get on, on board uh, with your topical gripe there. Now, it's time for what we call an unpopular opinion. This is where we asked our guests to tell us something they love that they know everyone else hates or vice versa. Just what is it? In keeping with trying, I realise this, this show is all about grapes, so I thought I, I want to say something positive. Um, and okay. So my, my unpopular opinion is a movie I love that I can't make a critical case for and everyone perhaps, <laughs> perhaps rightly uh, disdains it. And that movie is Velvet Goldmine. But is that Jonathan Rhys Myers? Yes, yes. It's a movie about glam rock, the glam rock era. And it came out in about 97, I think. It was the opening film at the Edinburgh Film Festival. They had a big themed party. And then remember, just it got slaughtered by the critics and, and lots of people hated it. And I think one of the reasons they hated it was people were thinking it was going to be a kind of um, Bowie biopic analogue you know, in, in which Jonathan Rhys Meyer's character was essentially David Bowie. And, and he is in lots of ways. He's he's inspired by Bowie. And Ewan McGregor's character is inspired by Iggy Pop. And I think there was that, you know, that kind of fandom protectiveness. It was like, we wanted a Bowie movie. We didn't get it. So we're not going to actually address what this film's really about. We're, we're just going to be angry that, that it's not a Bowie biopic. And also that preciousness around certain stars that, the, the fans just won't, well, they wouldn't have been happy with a Bowie biopic anyway. But it's a film that I really love it because what it's about isn't about being a pop star. It's not about glam rock. It's about being a fan. Because really at the heart of the film is Christian Bale plays this journalist. And he's a journalist later in the film, but it's about how as a he's a, um, a, a gay teenager who's, feels finally a sense of identity and joy and celebration in glam rock when it comes along and in uh, the the character of Brian Slade, as he's called, is the kind of the Bowie figure in this. And there's this wonderful moment where he li lives in Manchester in some really kind of dingy uh, sort of back street and is with the really kind of parents who are always in front of the TV and, and Brian Slade is on TV on top of the pops and being outrageous and he's like pointing to the telly and pointing to his parents and look mom that's me that's me and it's this feeling every kid has had at one point to say that here's the thing I aspire towards or here's something that that means a lot to my identity and, and there it is and it captures that absolutely brilliantly but also I think people hated it as well because of, of this sort of pseudo Bowie um, figure uh, and the music and the, the, the way they depict the his image, they have a, a version of Ziggy Stardust, which is that he has this character called Maxwell Demon. So he plays a kind of alien turned rock star. And um, what I think people didn't realise was is that you can't put what Bowie did back then in a movie in the 90s and expect people to feel that it, the impact that it would have. So what Todd yes. Haynes did was did something else and very strange. So the strangeness of it hits you and you think, my God, 
what must that have been like? Because this feels weird to me now. But if it's something that you've seen videos of for 20, 25 years, it's not going to be any impact on you. So I think, it, I mean, it's a highly flawed film. Um, its timeline is all over the place. <laughs> and it's got some laughably pretentious dialogue that, which might even have been intentional because I think the characters every so often try to be profound about their music and they just sound like arseholes. Mm-hmm. But um, ultimately, I, th- I think it's a, it's a, a kind of a bit of a curious egg, but I, I do love the fact that it's about music, it's about, and it's about loving music, about how music means so much to you when you are a certain age, um, and and how it, it helps shape your identity, but also ultimately about how it's all a big fraud, because the Brian Slade character morphs into this kind of <laughs> American eighties um, Reaganite uh, stadium band act, and that happens to. You know, every, every idealistic teenager grows up and finds that the, the bands they loved have, have become old. So it, it's it's about a lot of things I can relate to, but I, I totally understand why people thought it was shit. <laughs> I was just looking up some quotes. Uh, so, yes, directed by Todd Haynes, Brian Slade quote, I knew I should create a sensation, gasped the rocket, and out he went. Oh, no, this is quoting Oscar Wilde. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of Oscar Wilde quotes <laughs> in the film. Yeah. Mandy Slade, you all know me, subtleties by middle name. It's as subtle as the piece of skin between my vagina and anus. Ooh la la, what's that called? I can never quite remember No Man's Land. Oh, gosh, my geez, darling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's... Who uh, plays Mandy Slade? Tony Collette. Tony Collette, Tony that's Collette. it, right. I mean, she's having a ball. I mean, everyone <laughs> in the film is having a great time making the film. Yeah, I've only ever seen pieces of it. So um, so I could neither make the case for or against. The pieces that I saw looked intriguing and the cast is pretty stellar. Mm. So oh, I yeah. actually think in the light, maybe in that you could make a case for it in the light of all the current crop of biopics because there have been a sort of rash of them in the last five yeah. years, maybe even just with the, you know, the Elvis one, the Queen one, the Elton Rocket John one. one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, we've we've gone through a few of the, especially not, of the seventies of that period. It's definitely not better than any of those films, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it's, but it's just that I, I get what it was trying to do, and and it has got some f- wonderful moments. But those are actual biopics, so you can kind of yeah. go, look, we've got all of those. This is just like a reimagining of a time, in a similar way that Almost Famous is not about you know Fleetwood Mac or the yeah, Eagles or. Yeah. Credence, who which was maybe maybe it's closest to Credence. the Allman Brothers, wasn't it? The the Allman, Allman Brothers. Brothers it, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got one more silver dollar. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. So so that you kind of it can create its own thing. I think it's hard. I think everyone has an opinion when you you know that that they want it to be. You know, yeah, like you say, it was never going to make those people happy because they wanted a Bowie biopic. But even if they'd have got one. They wouldn't hmm. have liked what they got because it wouldn't have been their version of him. Yeah, there, there is always that kind of gatekeeping element that, that certain fans will never be happy. Uh, and someone said recently that, that the worst thing about any cultural um, element is its fandom. And um, so I suppose it helped for, for me. It's not that I wasn't a Bowie fan. It's just that I wasn't you know, a, a religious Bowie fan. So I didn't feel like there was a... Um, I mean, I, I was approaching Bohemian Rhapsody with with uh, a degree of trepidation because I was a big Queen fan and I, I knew so much about 
um, Freddie Mercury in his life. So uh, the liberties they were taken with it were, were obviously going to grate a bit more, but I could see why they took the decisions that they did to create a, a more satisfying narrative. Um, in Velvet Goldmine, there isn't really a satisfying narrative because it's so all over the place. <laughs> well, th- th- there is and there isn't. I mean, ultimately, it, it, there's, there's huge elements of it that totally work and other elements that are complete uh, trash fire. Um, but <laughs> I, it's, you know, especially when it is trying to be profound. But, but it gets... One of the things it gets is how quickly in a culture or in a scene... Um, it's, it's there and it's gone. You know, they have a, a kind of farewell to glam concert, and it's only meant to be about three years after glam started, <laughs> because that is that is always the case. You um, partly that if you don't appreciate a cultural moment, it's gone. But also, one thing I've noticed in every culture is that someone's always going to tell you you just missed the golden age. You know, whenever you turn up, someone's going to say, "Oh, this it's all over now. This was all going to be. This was all uh, at its peak." you know, 18 months ago or six <laughs> months ago, you know. It's like, actually, you mentioned Almost Famous that there's a the, uh, great moment in that with um, Philip Seymour Hoffman playing Lester Bangs, and he says to the young critic, oh, you're going to be a, a, a music reviewer. That's great. Too bad you missed rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Thank you for bringing that. It's almost like that could be an unpopular opinion slash guilty pleasure. Yeah, yeah. Oh no, I've got I've got much guiltier, guilty pleasures. But <laughs> see, I can I can at least make an aesthetic case for Velvet Goldman. <laughs> this is the section of the podcast we call historical beef. That's where we look at a rivalry, a historical one. And I thought we might do a literary one. And then Chris, you said to me, actually, I'd quite like to cover a rock and roll beef. So tell me, tell me what you want to talk about. Yeah, you know, in in, in way, way before the era of rap battles and uh, diss tracks, <laughs> um, <laughs> there was the, this kind of back and forth beef, which started with Neil Young writing his songs uh, Southern Man and then the song Alabama. And the, the, it was Southern Man was, was about the Ku Klux Klan and racism and, and Jim Crow in the South. And um, it seemed to gra- greatly upset uh, Leonard Skinnerd. Um, who were from Alabama, and uh, Ray Van Zant, the songwriter, who had been a big Neil Young fan and would perform in Neil Young t-shirts, and they massively took the huff. And <laughs> so that's about, such a Scottish about, phrase, by the way. I've loved about, hearing today. Yeah. About Alabama being dissed this way, so they they wrote "Sweet Home Alabama," um, which is a fantastic track, and it's got a line in it about uh, "I hope Neil Young remembers that South don't Southern need him Man. anyway." You know, Southern Man don't need him anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can kind of relate to that, that um, or not relate to it from that perspective. I, I've seen it so many times. People can't take criticism of like where they're from. It's like they, they only want to celebrate. They, they can't take the rough with the smooth. Um, but they, yeah, they, they, they wrote that song as their response. Uh, and then a few, after, shortly after the band died, uh, Warren Zevon wrote his own response, which is a song called Play It All Night Long. And uh, it, it goes, uh, Grandpa pissed his pants again. He don't give a damn. Brother Billy got both guns drawn. He ain't been right since Vietnam. Sweet home Alabama, play that dead band song. And it's this horrible, horrible song about incest and <laughs> um, farmyard diseases and uh, how ever, everything's fallen apart. But we'll ignore all, all the things that are wrong in Alabama and we'll all sing 
that dead band song we're all saying sweet home alabama all night um so th- this was his way of of saying these things are still wrong <laughs> with alabama and no matter how good a song sweet home alabama is it hasn't addressed any of the the issues there of racism and domestic violence and all the things that, that neil young was alluding to and i love the fact that um there was this way of expressing it through music that that leonard skinner's way of expressing their kind of state pride was to do so in this this song and to be fair neil young later did um apologize he felt he'd he'd been as a, a kind of liberal canadian he maybe wasn't in the best place to to write about another area so he he did write and work with um or i think he wrote to leonard skinner hoping they would work together but i think um the the plane crash happened before they could that pops up in Con Air, the plane crash. Yeah, yeah. So there's a beautiful, like, kind of a bunch of, like, you know, prisoners in a plane singing a song about a bunch of musicians that died in a plane crash. Yeah, that sounds... Yeah. Steve Buscemi points it out. It's a yeah. defining irony. A bunch of idiots yeah. on a plane dancing to a song by a band that died in a plane crash. Yes, yeah. But a lot of Leonard Skinner's song... Have you ever heard God and Guns? I think so. I'm not yeah, couldn't, like, couldn't quote the lyrics. <laughs> the peacemaker in the dresser drawer, God and guns mm. is what keeps us strong. So, you know, they're certainly putting a viewpoint out. And I think it's okay <laughs> for someone else to come out and go, not sure I quite agree with that. Yes. And it's but it's the same, it's always the same argument that somehow if you're critical of something that you can't also accept that there's brilliant things from it. So mm-hmm. I've I and I felt this extended to I don't want to make everything about Brexit, but um you know, there was this kind of like by British campaign, I suppose, in the in the um, you know post Brexit, to which the, it was sort of being pushed by the government. I was like, oh, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the only thing we appear to be manufacturing from this government is mass incompetence. <laughs> and then I yeah. I had people just kind of go, you hate Britain, you hate, how dare you? You are one person said I was treasonous for saying it. And I was like, well, I am British. So if I hate Britain, then I hate myself. Like, What are you talking about? Mm. I can be incredibly proud of what we've done. I can be proud of the NHS. I can be proud of sporting. I can be a proud of so many, you know, education, you know, that, well, I mean, that's changing as well. It never <laughs> used to cost as much, you know, like in America, the system that they have there. But you can, of course, you can still like be from a place and be proud of lots of things about it, but also be critical. And it just sort of seems that people don't accept that you can hold, you know, multitudes it's, within it's you. A, it's a conservative uh, trope often to say, if you're critical of your country, you're being unpatriotic. Yeah. Uh, and and I think actually it speaks to a, a lack of security and insecurity about people's identity if they can't take criticism. I think Brexit was the ultimate expression of that in that, People who purported to be hugely patriotic Brits, the reason they were voting for Brexit was, or they were advocating Brexit, was they didn't have as high an opinion of, of Britain or weren't feeling as secure in, in Britain's identity as the French were as of France or as Germans were of Germany. Because the Germans didn't feel that being part of the EU was diluting their sense of national identity. They had enough of a robust sense of their identity to not feel that way, whereas certain British people felt insecure about their, their identity and, and felt we have to stand alone. And I you encounter this all the time. It's why I think with them, um, I, I often thought of that why Warren Zevon wrote that re- report. He'll have encountered this as well. People who 
the minute there's any criticism of something they hold dear, that instead of saying, well, can I take that criticism? You know, can I take the rough with the smooth? Is this anything you do love, you have to be able to see its flaws. Uh, And sometimes we love something because of their flaws, whereas just deflecting criticism uh, as a a gut reaction just shows that you aren't as um, robust in your love of that thing as you'd like to profess. Yes. And it was interesting, actually, because Brexit brought up so much of this. And I tried not to because I think I sort of tried to understand why people voted to leave. And then, you know, in the aftermath of it, we saw a lot of people voted because they were promised things that they didn't get. So everyone knows what that feels like Mm. Um, (laughs) or that they were lied to. I mean, Scotland, you know, I mean, have every right to be raging and and demanding when they're going to get to ask about independence again, because, you know, there are a lot of Scottish people who voted you know, mm. to, to in the referendum to stay in the UK because we were going to be part of the EU. Yeah, yeah, that, that was one of the major arguments was often made. If you vote for independence, you'll be voting yourself out of the EU. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that went down well. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I wonder if, you know, to close the circle slightly on the song front, I do think that um, whenever I look into these rivalries in the creative arenas, Mm. that actually they help, I suppose, I guess, elevate all the art is the hope, Mm -hmm. is that one person inspiring another means someone's been inspired, whether it's through anger or love or joy Mm -hmm. or disdain, to respond to something that then it just begets more art. Yes, I think also you would have to, uh, I mean, I guess every songwriter will say sometimes they they come up with a, a... a song that's that's middling, you know, that, that, that not everyone knocks out of the park. But if you're going to write a song that's a repost to someone, you're not going to release it unless you know it's an absolute belter because the, the first comeback is, well, their song was better than yours. Yeah. So it, it not only <laughs> creates more art, but it forces you to raise your own bar. You know, if, if you're going to write something that's a, a reaction, yours better be as good as theirs. been amazing having you on the podcast uh before we sign off is there anything you'd like to plug oh, because yeah. you've got publishing <laughs> dates and all sorts so tell us tell us where people can find you and what to look out for uh, my paperback of my latest book the cliff house is out on may 25th and uh, the new ambrose parry novel which the books i write with my wife the historical novel that's called voices of the dead that'll be out on june 15th um but lots of festivals going to over the summer will be at the I Write Festival in Glasgow on May 19th with the Fun Loving Crime Writers. Oh, yes, uh, that's your band with yeah, Val with McDermott and Mark, Mark Billingham, Stuart Neville, Doug Johnson, and Luca Vesti. And we will, the band will also be appearing at the Borders Book Festival in Melrose in June. Uh, and I think we're also appearing at the Harrogate Crime Festival in July. So, yeah, we're looking forward to a great summer of literary events and rock and roll. <laughs> Brilliant. I like it multitasking um yes i've i got a copy i got uh, of the book and it's fantastic so get your hands on that when it comes out on may 25th you won't regret it i promise and also uh christopher is on various social medias i believe um i don't know how frequently but uh you can also seek him out there um and are you at the edinburgh festival uh yeah i'll be marissa and i as ambrose parry will be at the edinburgh book festival Right, um, okay, at the book festival. Fantastic. And I'm there for a week actually doing a work in progress at the Monkey Barrel. Um, so that's the first time I've announced that. So you've heard it here on the podcast. Just a week, 14th to the 20th. I am also on tour right now. 
across the UK. If you're about, you want to see me, check out my website. All the details are on there. Or my Instagram, Tiff Stevenson Comic, Twitter, all the usual places. Thank you so much, Christopher Brookbar. It has been fantastic having you on the podcast. It has been cathartic. <laughs> you can listen to other programmes from The Bugle, including The Bugle, Catharsis, Tiny Revolutions, Top Stories and The Gargle, wherever you find your podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.